Our final scripture reading of tonight, it will be the one that we pause and reflect on. Uh, the general flow of this service as we try to rehearse the story, the, the great story of the arrival of Jesus Christ, God in human flesh. It's an extraordinary story. In some ways, we just wanted to give you the flavor of it as we work through. But after this final reading, we'll pause and reflect on one particular part of it. And we'll think especially about the wise men and their gifts and how we too can learn to be good givers and receivers of gifts. Final reading is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 2 verses 9 to 12, followed by a reading from the Gospel of John chapter 3. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him. And as, our, as is our, our pattern at City Reform, let's affirm together, I'll, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you respond. It wasn't printed, so if we caught you by surprise, you, you'll, know, you'll know next time what we're doing. Maybe more than any other time of the year, Christmas is a season associated with gift giving. And this passage, this short section that we've closed with in Matthew, is sort of the origin story of Christmas gift giving. As a child, I always thought of Christmas as my favorite holiday. I had many reasons for liking it. I loved having a long winter break. I loved the festive cheer, the warm family traditions, the bright decorations. But honestly, most of all, I liked getting presents. The problem with getting presents is that they seldom satisfy in the long term. As Christmas approached, I used to do this, perhaps some of you young people are doing it now, I would begin to count down the days of Christmas. Perhaps you would cut off rings on a chain or change the numbers on a piece of paper or, or maybe you'd put up something on a tree and as each day got closer, the anticipation would build and sometimes on Christmas Eve, I couldn't sleep at night. I now have that problem for different reasons. We're finishing all of our wrapping and doing all of the other stuff that's associated with it. The problem was, even as a child, Christmas never lived up to my expectations. As much as I anticipated it, and, and honestly, my parents were thoughtful and they bought reasonable and nice gifts, but once the flurry of unwrapping was over, I often found myself thinking, is that it? Is that all? Is that what I was waiting for for all of these days? There's 364 more days until the next Christmas. And sometimes, to me, Christmas afternoon felt like the saddest day of the year because it was the longest to Christmas again. And once the presents had been unwrapped and the excitement had gone by, it just wasn't everything I had dreamed it would be. 
Now, those of you in the room who are a little older know that sometimes, somewhere along the way, Christmas changes. Instead of being about getting presents, it's much more about giving presents. And your anticipation has less to do with what you think you'll get, but making sure you've checked off everyone on your list and you haven't forgotten anyone, especially someone that might give a present to you. You don't want to be caught flat-footed or empty-handed when your great-aunt shows up at a holiday party and you realize you don't have anything. As fun as that can be to buy a good present or to see the expression of excitement on someone else's face, there are also disappointments. And sometimes the gift-giving becomes a form of pressure all in itself, a burden that threatens to make the season anything but joyous. Two years ago, a holiday movie advertised itself as one in which holiday moms feeling underappreciated and overburdened rebelled against the challenges and expectations of the Super Bowl for Mothers, Christmas. Well, the movie was a flop, but it clearly echoed things that people feel. There's a lot of pressure in our gift giving, even at this great time of year. And so whether it's joy that disappoints or giving that feels like a burden, there are struggles at Christmas. And so tonight as we return to reflect on the origin story of gift giving, I want to think of what we can learn from this story. In the text, uh, the wise men arrive to visit Jesus in Bethlehem, and they open their treasures, giving gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, gifts beyond description for people like Mary and Joseph who had grown up in poverty. In the Christian history, in the Christian traditions, the, the giving of gifts was associated with the appearance of the wise men. And for many centuries, it was recognized at the celebration of Epiphany on January 6th. In the span between the 25th of December, or the recognizing the birth of Jesus, and the appearance of the wise men on January 6th was known as the 12 days of Christmas. Gradually over time, the gift giving shifted and everything moved all the package on the 25th. And that's generally how we celebrate today. But what can we learn from this story? I'd just like to make three quick reflections, or I'd like to think of it three ways. I'd like to think of the story from the perspective of the wise men and consider how we could be good gift givers. And secondly, I'd like to think about the big story of all, God, the biggest gift giver. And finally, think about what God's asking us to give to him. At first, and this will take the most time, but hopefully it won't be too long, the wise men. The wise men are familiar parts of the Christmas story. There are aspects of the story that can get a little confused. A couple things to clear up as we think about gift-giving from the perspective of the wise men. First of all, despite what any of the nativity scenes show, it's almost certain the wise men didn't show up on the night that Jesus was born. The, the, the effect of the text, though it doesn't tell us specifically, is that they began their journey from somewhere in the east when the star arose. And it would seem that the star rose when Jesus was born. And so they had been traveling uh, for some time before they got to where Jesus was in Bethlehem. The text that we have before us uh, tells us that, they, um, that when they got to Bethlehem, they found a house, not a stable, and that Jesus was a child, not a baby. Later, when Herod, who heard the, the sort of uh, uh, dark 
threatening tones of, of Herod's concern. When Herod wants to eliminate Jesus, he goes after all children under two, meaning Jesus was likely older. The second thing we can be confused about with the wise men is that we can uh, perhaps think of the wise men who are overly uh, um, domesticated to our sense of who should be there. We can miss the real meaning of their name or perhaps the, the scandal of their appearance. The Greek word that's translated uh, wise men is magi. It's where we get the word magic. Uh, these wise men were certainly considered wise men in their home country, in the, the pagan nation somewhere, perhaps in Persia or Babylon. They were wise because they studied the stars. They knew how to predict the future from the stars. They were, in a sense, astrologers. But as you may know, the Jewish people didn't think highly of astrology, not the study of the stars, but the, uh, the pagan practice of looking at the stars to determine the course of human events. This was celebrated in many of the religions around them and the Jewish people generally rejected it, as they should. And yet here they arrive, these astrologers from a far off and distant foreign religion, one that often was as likely to worship the stars as it was to look at them. And here they are, in a sense, the most unusual guests at the celebration of Jesus' birth. Let me pause there for a second and reflect on this, that God in some way that we don't understand chose to reveal himself to these outsiders. These people who wouldn't have had much access at all to anything God had been doing through all of the lists of names that we read early in Matthew, all of the ways God had been showing himself to people that would have been largely unfamiliar with him. And yet somehow God worked through the stars we don't know what it was that he showed him. Was it an alignment of planets or a comet or a supernova? Many theories abound. We don't know. But we do know that God somehow met them in a place they could understand. That he chose to reveal himself to people, to draw them in, and to bring these highly unusual guests, showing that Jesus was a king not just for the people of Israel, but for all the world. And I wonder tonight if some of you here feel like outsiders. You wonder if perhaps a religious service is the last place anyone would expect you to see. Or perhaps one of your neighbors implored you or one of your family members invited you or, or maybe someone put an invitation in your door and you decided to come. And as you walked in, you said, do I belong here? Or perhaps... You've been burdened by the ways you've failed so much so recently. Take comfort from these strange guests at the birth of Jesus. God was intent at the very beginning to make his gospel of good news accessible to people from all places. All are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. All are invited to the manger where God Emmanuel comes to be with us. The feature that strikes me most as I look at the passage that was found in verse 10, it speaks of their great joy. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They had been stuck in Jerusalem, not knowing where to go. Herod was beginning to plot against them. The people of the city were concerned for political unrest. Even though Jesus was the long-expected Savior, he was threatening the balance of power. 
And so they need help. God leads them again by the star. And when they arrive at the place where Jesus is, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. There are four words here. These four words in English match the four Greek words that Matthew wrote when he wrote his gospel. Emphasizing one after another, rejoice exceedingly great joy. After this long trip of journey across mountains and deserts, or as the old song goes, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star, danger and sacrifice, uncertainty, great personal expense, and now they were here face to face outside the house where was born the king whose birth had altered the stars in the sky. They were invited into an event that had reshaped the cosmos. And as they saw the star leading them to the house, they rejoiced with great joy. Do you hunger for that sort of a joy? A joy that doesn't fade with the unwrapping of the presence or that's not hinged on getting every gift on the, on, on the list right. But a joy that's deep and profound, an invitation in to relationship with the God who has made us. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Again, we're familiar with the story, so we miss a bit of the scandal here, but it's odd that they worship a person. What they were doing is they were bowing low. It says they fell down, they lowered themselves before him to show the greatness of the one who was there. Now, sometimes people in other nations around Israel would do this before kings. They would show how great the king was by lowering himself before him. And that may be what's happening here, but it may be that Matthew's intending us to see that even here in his birth, these men from a far-off place knew there was something more than a mere human in that house. But the God of the universe had come to be with him. Matthew knows it, and as he tells the story, he's certainly reflecting on Jesus Christ, truly, truly human and truly God. And as they worship him, they open their treasures. They open their treasures and they offer gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It's from these three gifts that many Christian traditions have risen, where people think of three wise men or three kings. The text doesn't say that they're kings and doesn't say there were three of them, but there were three gifts. And it may be that each of those gifts is, is something that helps us think about Jesus differently. The, the church, as they meditated on this down through the years, loved to reflect on the gifts that they brought. They were, in a sense, very thoughtful gifts, worth, worthy of a king. The church reflected on gold and thought, now that's a gift for a king. That's a royal gift. And as they thought about the frankincense, so often associated in the Bible with the ministry of priests, they thought, now this is a prediction that Jesus will be a priest, helping give us access to God. And perhaps the myrrh, so often associated with funerals, preparing a body for burial, perhaps even here in this, in this bright moment of Jesus' starlit birth is a foreshadowing, a shadow of his impending death. It may be that that's true, but Matthew doesn't give us explanations. What we do know is that they were all very excellent gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh expensive, valuable, rare. 
In the upcoming verses that follows after what we are reading tonight, Mary and Joseph will have to flee from Herod as they go back into Egypt to escape living as refugees in the land of their forefathers. These precious gifts would have sustained them until they could return back to Israel. What do we learn as we think of the giving of these gifts that the kings bring? I think we learn that joy and desire to value true worth can fuel gift giving that really, really shapes and changes us. Again, moving beyond the, the immediacy of the moment, we have people around us that are valuable, that are made in God's image, and you have opportunities this season to value them as you give things that matter. And perhaps you've bought gifts that have done that, but let me ask you to move beyond the commercialization of the season. How can you give of yourself, your time, your energy, your attention in this next week or two? To show the value of the people that you're sharing life with. We see good gift givers who gave sacrificially, crossing long distances to show the value of the new king. But if we were to end there and merely think about humans giving gifts to humans, we'd really miss the heart of the whole story. Because as impressive as these wise men are, as impressive, impressive was their journey, as impressive was the the rich value of their gifts, there's a bigger gift happening in this passage. And the people around us are worthwhile. They are made in God's image. They are gifted for God's purposes. They have dignity and importance. But as we know, and you will be reminded of repeatedly in this holiday season, the people around you are flawed. They're broken, just as we are. They will disappoint you and aggravate you and irritate you, and they will even to use the biblical language, sin against you, you will be hurt. You have been hurt. This Christmas season will remind many of you of deep pain and hurt. There's a much more important gift. There's much more important things happening in this story than just the gift of these uh, uh, wise men to a new king. A bigger frame of reference in the story shows us that the biggest gift of all is the gift that God is giving to the world as we read through the Gospel of Matthew. Our second reading draws out this aspect even more. John chapter 3, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave a gift. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever should believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God gives the gift at Christmas that is above all else. The thing that will fuel our joy is when we come to know deeply and intimately and personally God as he's given himself to us in Jesus Christ. And that is a joy that does not fade or perish even as the bright lights of Christmas fade into the slush and mush and cold darkness of January. God gives a gift that will not fade or pass away. God the Father gave the eternal Son for us. God the Son agreed to enter our reality and come near. This great mystery of the Trinity that is at the heart of all expressions of Christianity since the very beginning is particularly in this point of Christmas. 
God the Father gave God the Son. Jesus humbled himself. He took on human flesh. He lived among us. He lived in obscurity and poverty. He lived in the midst of sinful humans like you and I who were quicker to rebel against God and to shut him out of our lives than we are to worship. Jesus was then chased into exile. And he grew up in a small rural town of no real importance. He was rejected and betrayed, crucified, and killed. The crown he would wear in his life is not the crown of gold you may have, the wise men may have expected, but ultimately was the crown of thorns that he willingly received to stand in the place of rebels like you and I, taking God's just judgment of our sin upon himself that we could be forgiven. The only time myrrh is mentioned again in the Gospels is in reference to the death of Jesus. It's why many people read that back into the story. We, we don't know if that's what the wise men could have possibly had in mind. But perhaps Matthew is looking forward. On his, uh, on his last day on earth, Jesus, as he was being crucified, was offered wine mixed with myrrh. It would numb the pain, but Jesus said no. He would take punishment that's foolish in our place. And after his death, his close friends, a collection of women returned to the tomb to prepare his body for burial, and they brought myrrh. But it was not needed because Jesus was no longer there. He had been raised and that first Easter Sunday he was raised for our righteousness and our salvation. In his death, our sins are paid for. In his resurrection, we have new life. And that is what we mean when we say God gave Jesus to us, the greatest gift of all, the gift that brings forgiveness, the gift that offers new life. So what does God want from you? First, we must receive, we must take, we must receive this gift in faith, we trust and believe this is for me. This is my hope. I know I need salvation from sin and I can't do it myself. I need Jesus for me. In faith we receive. But next we surrender ourselves to God. In a sense we give to Him that which He gave us from the beginning control of our lives. We, we give back to God what is rightfully His as creator of all things. We bow before him and say, my life is for you. And so we call Jesus not only Savior, but we call him Lord. We say, my, my life is yours. Would you take it? Last year as we began uh, our first worship service in this building, I, I told a story that was very personal to me, a story about my family. I'd like to follow up on that. Our church has only owned this building for about a year and a half, but we've been in Oakland for 16 years, and early in our time, we knew the church, the Christians who were meeting in this building. We would rent from them on occasion, and we had good relationships, and one of the reasons we knew them is that my grandfather had been a member here when he was a young man, and later in life returned to visit, so they knew who I was. We had a bit of a friendship. It was against anyone's expectation that the building would ever end up coming to us after it had a couple of owners. Because of that, I know stories that are personal not only to me, but personal to the space that you're meeting in. 
And on that first service, I, I told you a strange story of how my grandfather met my grandmother in this building, in this church, at a Christmas service. It, it was the strangest of all things. They were from different places. Uh, the church that was meeting here had been planting a church in Lower Greenfield. No, those of you who live around here know it's called Four Mile Run, or simply The Run for short. She was from down there, he was from up here, and they went to different congregations, but the kids from down the run were doing a Christmas pageant in this building. And as the pageant came to a close, they, they had an opportunity for people to talk about gift giving to God. There was something set up in the front, they, they spoke of it as an altar to pick up the biblical image of laying a gift on the altar, and so people would give a variety of things at the end of it, the pastor asked, Pastor Rogers, whose plaque is on the wall in the hallway, as you leave, you'll see him listed there. He asked if someone would want to give their life to Jesus. The plan had been for my grandmother, who was part of the troop putting on the pageant, to demonstrate a person giving their life to Jesus. And so she stood up and walked down and stood in the front near the altar, offering herself to Jesus, giving the gift that God deserves. My grandfather, who probably wasn't paying attention, thought they were doing an altar call. He thought they were inviting everyone to come forward. Little do we knew God had been working on his heart. Since then, I found his own version of the story. When he was 70 years old, he wrote this as a, a story for an Advent devotional. Let me read it to you from his perspective. The service that night in 1934 was called the White Gifts to the King. The floodlights focused on the manger scene at the front of the church where one by one a representative of each Sunday school class walked forward and placed a gift. It was generally food, clothing, or money depending on the particular project the class had chosen to pursue. Then in a hushed voice, the minister invited anyone who loved and truly wanted to follow Jesus to present to him their most precious gift, the gift of their heart. There was a period of silence, and then a stranger to the congregation, a 16-year-old girl from another section of town, walked to the platform and knelt down. Parentheses. She had been part of the program because she was soon to join the church. The silence continued, and a shy 18-year-old boy at the rear of the church, parentheses, he was not part of the program, became uneasy. He had been wrestling unsuccessfully with a lot of pride, self-centeredness, and other sin problems. He wasn't particularly religious and still hadn't joined the church. He couldn't grasp some doctrinal information, but was finally willing to turn over as much as he knew of himself to as much of Jesus Christ as he understood. His hands tightened, then he rose and walked forward. By the time the minister finished speaking, the boy was kneeling beside the girl he'd never seen before. Responding to the minister's questions, both youth professed their faith in Jesus Christ and promised to follow him as he would lead. Friends, I'm not going to ask you to come forward today, and there's no program attached to this. In 1934, I know for a fact several lives were changed at a Christmas pageant in this building when the offer of salvation was heard and received and several people 
not just responding to Jesus as Savior, but to Jesus as King, turned over to Him, the greatest gift of all. Friends, we are in a season of gift giving, and I, and I hope you get good gifts. And I, and, I, and I hope what you put your time and energy into is received and celebrated and appreciated. But don't miss the greatest gift of all. The gift that God gave to us in Jesus. And friends, tonight and this evening, you have an opportunity to respond by giving back to God what He most desires from us. Our heart, our life, as we bow our knee and worship before Him and proclaim Jesus to be Savior and Lord. Let's close in prayer.